This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Do you believe that the Chinese Great Wall is the only human-built monument that can be seen with bare eyes from the moon? If yes, you've just experienced the power of urban legends. In this week's presentation from the Center for Social Innovation, Chip Heath, professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business, explains what makes ideas stick. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby, and I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. I want to briefly introduce Eric Nee.、Um, as everyone knows, this event is co-hosted by the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, which is very much about what Rosa Beth was just talking about. It's dedicated to a kind of leadership in, in solving social problems. That、um, is sector neutral. It's about、um, working both the, the problem being matched to the, whatever is the, the right solution, no matter what sector it comes from, and working cross sectors. At, at any rate, I'm tremendously excited about what is going on here at the at the Stanford Center of Social Innovation, and Eric is the managing editor of the review that you'll all be receiving complimentary copies of,、uh, and he's going to introduce Chip, Eric. Thanks very much, Catherine. As she mentioned, I'm the managing editor of the review. What she didn't mention is that、uh, she also sits on our advisory board,、um, where she helps us come up with、uh, interesting and new and provocative ideas for the magazine. It's my pleasure to introduce Chip Heath, who is a professor here at the Stanford School of Business in organizational behavior. Chip also serves on the magazine's editorial board,、um, where he helps me select and edit articles. This morning, Chip is going to give you a preview of his new book, titled "Made to Stick: Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die." Just the other day, Chip told me that Costco had placed a pre-order for the book. So,、uh, at the beginning of the new year, when you're shopping in Costco for your gallon containers of ketchup and your two dozen athletic socks, you'll be able to pick up a, a copy of his book、uh, in the aisle. In his new book. Chip asks the question: Why is it that some ideas stick and others don't? It's not because necessarily millions of dollars are spent on advertising or public relations, all that, although that certainly does does help. But what Chip's looking at are ideas that that even without that sort of support are ones that stick in our mind and become embedded in our society. These are things like urban legends, popular folk remedies, business strategy myths. 
all sorts of different kinds of ideas. In addition to answering the question of what makes ideas stick, he details how people can use these same principles to create ideas for their own organization, to create more effective messages, the sort of you know, storytelling that we've been hearing about. And that's something I'm sure that everybody here in this room can make use of. Chip? You actually won't have to wait until January to get your copy of Made to Stick. We'll be happy to mail you a copy this fall. We're getting galleys in a few weeks. Let me start out with an idea that you may have heard. Let me actually see a show of hands. How many of you have heard that you only use 10% of your brain? Who ran that research study? All right. If this were true, brain damage would be a much less serious problem. All right. When's the last time you saw a cop show and the police officer saying, I'm sorry, ma'am, to say that your b husband took a bullet to the skull. But luckily, it only went through the 90% of his brain that he wasn't using. All right? This turns out to be a bogus idea. It's an urban legend. It's kind of a science version of an urban legend. Here are some others. Uh, it turns out that the Great Wall of China is not the only man-made structure that is visible from outer space. I actually fell for this one myself until somebody pointed out to me that if the Great Wall of China is indeed very long, but it's also relatively thin, so if you could see it from outer space, you could also see any eight-lane freeway in Los Angeles. And if you remember, the, do you remember the old live cereal commercials with the kid that wouldn't eat nutritious stuff, Little Mikey? There is an urban legend that floats around that Little Mikey from the old live cereal commercials died from an overdose of Coca-Cola and Pop Rocks, which is a carbonated candy. Uh, and unfortunately, combining those two things had bad uh, impact on his digestive system. All right. I want you to think of the last time it was important for you to get a message across and make it stick so that you could walk out the room and have people that are in that room remember the idea that you had in mind and understand it and be able to act on it weeks later, months later, maybe a year later. All of you are in a position of trying to get your messages across and this is not an easy thing to do. There are some complications. Your ideas have to persist. And so you have to be able to have that lag time where you tell people a message and that they can remember it and act on it much later. Ideas also have to cross boundaries. So within any organization, you take a large organization like General Motors, it turns out that the specialists that we need to make organizations run don't speak the same languages. And so in an auto firm, the engineers don't talk the same language as the marketing people who are going to sell the cars that the engineers produce. And the finance people who are going to give the money to the engineers to make the cars speak a completely different language. But the most profound barrier, and the one that we, you as social entrepreneurs interact with most often, is the barrier between those of you inside your organization who know your vision and know what you're about, and the people outside the organization who might be clients, who might be supporters, who might be coalition partners of your organization. How do you get a message that will cross those boundaries? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that there's kind of an unlikely prototype for messages that stick, and that's urban legends. Now, what's interesting about urban legends is that they have, in fact, persisted over time. That story that we started out with about you only use 10% of your brain, you might think that that's an, a recent product of our fascination with neuroscience. You know, we see, we open up magazines these days and we see pictures of how people's brains light up when they're thinking about various things. It turns out folklorists have actually studied urban legends for a long period of time. The earliest example we can find of you only use 10% of your brain was in a conversation about the World's Fair in 1914. That's an idea that has persisted in our culture 
for over 90 years. Okay. Um, urban legends, it turns out, also cross boundaries. The most vivid example of this was I was talking to a group of Malaysian CEOs a few years ago for weird reasons, and I was a little worried about giving this talk because I knew I had some stories that propagated widely in North American culture, but I didn't know if they had made the leap to Malaysia. And so I started out at the cocktail party before I was going to present to figure out how, how far can I stretch the bounds of my normal examples. And I said, you know, have you heard this, you only use 10% of your brain? And they said, oh yeah, we, we know that one. And, and then I pulled out a, a more obscure one. There's, a, there's an urban legend that propagates in our society about a vanishing hitchhiker. That you pick up a person in your car and later on they vanish under suspicious circumstances. And it turns out that you've been you have picked up a person, you find out later on that you've picked up a person that was actually killed on the road that you encountered them. And the reason they vanished was because they were a ghost. So it's kind of a modern day ghost story. And so I started telling this story that's a little bit more obscure and the Malaysian CEO started laughing. They said, oh yeah, we, we know that one too. In Malaysia, it's well known that if there's a hitchhiker on the highway, you need to check to make sure their feet are touching the ground before you pick them up. <laughs> There's a story that has crossed pretty vast cultural barriers. And if we understood something about urban legends and why they are so naturally sticky, we might be in a better position to make our own messages stick with other people. And so what I want to point out is that urban legends don't have a lot of the advantages that your ideas might have. They don't have newspaper coverage. They don't have advertising budgets. They don't have blogs, newsletters, or podcasts and they don't have the assistance of PR professionals, and yet they survive and spread. So if we understood how these ideas managed to take hold of people's minds, then we might be in a better position of getting our own ideas across. So what I want to give you today are six hints to make your ideas as successful as urban legends. And uh, let me go tell you that they are in a book that you'll be getting a copy of with my brother Dan, who's actually here in the audience today. Uh, that's what it's going to look like uh, when it comes out in January. But here are the six hints. Urban legends are simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. So let's all say this together. Simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. And there's a little acronym built in, if you can see that, the success framework, which is a little hokey, but we found that it made it more memorable. Now, it turns out that I'm not going to have time to cover all six of these today because you're going to have an exercise to apply some of these principles to an idea that's described on a handout that's in front of you right now. So you have a one-page handout about Encore careers. And I'm going to go through a few of these principles, and then we're going to go into breakout groups, and during this session, we're going to try to improve the idea and the way of conveying the idea about on-career careers that is listed in the handout that you have. So today we only have time for three hints about how to make your idea successful. And Andy Goodman, who's one of my all-time heroes, talked to you yesterday about stories, so I knew I didn't want to cover stories. What I am going to talk about for a few minutes are concrete, credible, and emotional, and some principles for making your ideas score better on those criteria. Urban legends are concrete. The story of the vanishing hitchhiker is often told with a little scene in which the, the person who was hitchhiking with you vanishes in a cemetery. They run off the road, they ask you to stop the car, they run off the road past a line of trees, and later on when you go looking for them, you find yourself wandering in a cemetery. 
And the sweater that you had loaned them earlier in the car because they were shivering a little bit is draped over a tombstone, but you can't find them. So you head into town to try to figure out at the address that they gave you, what, you know, where did this person go? And you, know, you may want to check into your daughter because I picked her up on the, on the roadway and then she vanished. And I found the sweater that I had given her draped over a tombstone. That's a very concrete image. There's another story that's been popular over the last 10 years about a gang of uh, organ thieves that will steal your kidneys and leave you in a bathtub full of ice. And so that notion of waking up in a bathtub full of ice, shivering, kind of disoriented, not knowing what's going on, that's a very vivid, concrete image. Now, let's turn to the domain that we're more used to and think about the concreteness of the language that we use, because professional language often isn't very concrete. So here are some candidates. Capacity building, mission-related, deferred giving, social enterprise scalability. Right? <laughs> Vivid images come to your mind when you hear all of those terms. It turns out that this problem is not limited to our profession. You go to any profession, education or medicine is my favorite. If you've ever talked to a doctor, you know that they have not mastered concrete language. Uh, here's my favorite term, idiopathic cardiomyopathy. Cardiomyopathy actually means there's something wrong with your heart, and idiopathic means we have no idea what that is. Right? But it may be reassuring to know that when the doctors are confused about what's going on with your heart, that it's really idiopathic cardiomyopathy that you're suffering from, and they'll be solving it sometime soon. All right, when's the last time you heard a juicy piece of gossip? May have been sometime yesterday, sometime this morning. When's the last time you heard a juicy piece of gossip about a performance metric? that we're asked to uh, you know, come up with by our grant officers. We don't gossip about numbers. We don't gossip about abstractions. We talk about things that real people do in really concrete ways. And if we want people talking about our ideas, we better make them concrete enough to talk about. So let me give you an example. Saddleback Church is a mega church in Southern California. Saddleback Church has on the order of 50 to 70,000 members from the local area. Very successful religious organization. The pastor, Rick Warren is kind of the rock star of uh, evangelical ministers. He's now trying to tackle some of the social, get Christians together to tackle some of the social problems that occur in Africa. Now, at Saddleback Church, when they started out, and they started out, you know, 20, 25 years ago, with nobody other than Rick Warren. But they had an idea in mind of the kind of people that they wanted to bring to their church. And here it is, unchurched, upper-middle-income professionals. That's how middle ministers typically talk, talk about reaching the unchurched. Is that idea going to help somebody on the front lines of Saddleback Church make decisions about what to do for the potential uh, members of this congregation? Yeah, it's a little vague, it's a little abstract, even though that's the way that we talk when we're thinking in marketing speak. Here's what they talk about at Saddleback Church. Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Samantha. Two characters, they're mythical characters, but they are very real. So one of the things that we know about Saddleback Sam is he tends to be a little skeptical about traditional organized religion. He also doesn't listen to church music on the radio driving back and forth to his middle income career. All right? So what kind of music do you want to have at your worship services if you're trying to reach Saddleback Sam? You might want contemporary rock. And so it turns out all that they do at Saddleback Church is not the traditional canon of, you know, Protestant music. It's contemporary rock versions of that. Saddleback Sam and Samantha are very concerned about their, their children because they have two kids, boy and a girl, and they want them to grow up with moral values. 
And in fact, one of the things that may attract them to Saddleback Church is the fact that their children can engage in activities that have a moral foundation. So they, they can go camping, but with people that have good intentions and are going to train them to behave in the right ways. And so if we know that about Saddleback Sam, we know a lot of things about how to organize you know, teachers, and they have several thousand Bible class teachers at that church. All of those teachers, because they know about Saddleback Sam and Samantha and about their children, can make on-the-ground decisions that are consistent with attracting the kind of people that they're trying to attract. Here's the challenge to you. Do frontline people in your organization have a clear enough image? Can they paint a clear enough picture of your Saddleback Sam, of your Saddleback Samantha, that they can make the right set of decisions independently to do the things that your organization wants to accomplish? Here's another version, and Rosabeth talked about this organization in the last session. City Year is a national youth service organization, and here's part of their mission statement. We want to create the next generation of leaders for our democracy by bringing together a diverse group of youth together for a year of national service. Now, that's pretty inspiring. It's got leadership, it's got democracy, it's got diversity. Those are all words that have meaning and have emotional resonance in our culture. But it's still a little abstract about the, what the world would look like if we created a new generation of leaders, if we changed the culture of service in this country. And so here's a more concrete way that they talk about this. They say, we want a world in which one day the most common question asked of a 17-year-old in this country is, where are you going to do your year of national service? Now that is a vision. It's so concrete and it's so compelling that I usually get a little choked up every time I talk about it. I mean, it is a dramatically different way of picturing the world. Notice that by being a step more concrete than the typical mission statement language, they not only made their idea of what the world should look like more compelling to people, they've made it more emotional at the same time. It's more understandable, it's more emotional, people are more likely to care about it. By making our language concrete, we're going to engage people's understanding, their brains, as well as their emotions, their hearts. Second principle is that urban legends, and this is, this is kind of a quirky thing to think about, but urban legends actually, in their own perverse way, are credible. Why does that idea that you only use 10% of your brain circulate so well? Well, in part, it's because there's a number attached to it. 10%. Sounds pretty precise. Here's another one, one of my favorites. The Seattle windshield pitting epidemic. This was in the 1960s. It's the subject of a famous paper in sociology. It turns out that there were rumors in Seattle in the 1960s that the fallout from nuclear tests that were happening out in the Pacific Ocean as we were engaged in the Cold War with the Soviet Union was being carried up in the trade winds across the Pacific Ocean and was falling down onto Seattle. And that fallout was so toxic that it would actually pit the windshields of cars, much less think about what it's doing to our bodies. And it turns out that people started looking at their cars. And on the windshields, there were these little tiny pits that they had never noticed before. Right? And all of a sudden, this rumor took off because it gave people a way of verifying the credibility of the rumor. Now, it turns out that auto technology at the time, if you drive your car in the 1960s, given windshield-making technology, you develop tiny microscopic pits that you normally don't notice because you're looking through the windshield and not at the windshield. But in the context of this rumor, you start looking at your windshield, and this otherwise unbelievable idea suddenly gets kind of a hint of credibility. Now, 
We call that testable credentials, and it's, it's eerie how often rumors and legends develop that kind of testable credentials, that idea that people can test something out for themselves. Now, how would you use this to make your own ideas credible? Ronald Reagan was running against an incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, in 1980. This was a time when the United States was a little demoralized. Do you remember stagflation? Stagnant economy combined with inflation, stagnant employment combined with inflation. A very young Ted Koppel was numbering up the days that the Iranian revolutionary government had had U.S. prisoners in captivity. That's how he got his start on Nightline. And so Ronald Reagan was running against an incumbent president, which is typically tough, but there were things going on in the foreign policy and domestic policy environment that gave him a shot at being president. In the final debate with Jimmy Carter, there were lots of facts and statistics that Ronald Reagan could have pointed to about the state of the world that might make you want to elect him. But instead of quoting facts and statistics in his final statement in the final debate, here's what he finished up on. He said, I want you to ask yourself tonight, am I better off today than I was four years ago? And if your answer is yes, then there's a clear alternative for you in this election. But if your answer is no, there's also a clear alternative. And I'm ready to serve you as President of the United States. Now, the one improvement I would make on this statement is he's saying, am I better off than I was before? And one of the ironic things that political scientists have said, given the emphasis that we put on self-interest in our culture, is that people actually don't vote their pocketbooks. They vote other people's pocketbooks. They vote the state of the economy. And so Ronald Reagan's testable credential would have been more powerful. I want you to ask yourself, are we, as a nation, better off than we were four years ago? But notice that what he's done is he's outsourced the credibility. Facts and authorities and details are good, but in a world of spin, in a world of marketing, people might not believe your facts, your authorities, your details. And so a good thing to keep in mind is, can we make our ideas testable? Can we make them something that people can test out for themselves? Here's another problem with credibility. Credibility is fundamentally about believability. Do people believe your message? And in particular, if you have a message of change, do people believe that change is possible? Because the problems most of you are tackling seem so big and so insurmountable that it's easy to just throw up our hands and say, we're sunk on this. Let me give you a problem. Bill McDonough is an environmentalist, and he has a kind of unexpected idea to get across to people that what is good for the environment can be good for business. That's pretty unexpected. We typically think business at some point is going to have to realize that they need to make sacrifices to preserve our environment for the future. Bill McDonough doesn't see the trade-off that everybody else sees. Now, how do you make people believe that idea? Well, here's a story that he tells. A textile company named Rohner Textile that came to Bill McDonough because they had a problem. The trimmings, they make chairs. They may have made some of the chairs that are sitting in here. The trimmings from the bolts of fabric that they used to cover their chairs had been declared hazardous waste by the Swiss government. They actually had to ship them to Spain in order to find a country with laxer regulations so that they could be disposed of in, in a landfill. And Bill McDonough says, look, if the trimmings from the bolts of cloth that you're using are declared hazardous waste, but you're selling what's in the middle of those bolts of cloth, you don't take, have to be a rocket scientist to understand that you're selling hazardous waste. Right? And Rohner Textile says, look, 
we've got a problem. There's so much regulation that we can't have a viable business anymore with the current state of affairs. So they started out with 8,000 chemicals that are in common use as dyes for fabrics in industrial processes. 8,000 chemicals. And they said, we only want chemicals that have no toxicity implications, no muted, uh, I can't even say it, mutagenicity implications. Where's the person from the CDC to help me out with this? What they did after going through each of those chemicals with a, a series of screens was they eliminated 7,962. But of the remaining 38 chemicals, they can make every color of the fabric spectrum except for black. Now, the immediate advantage of this process was if you take out the hazardous chemicals out of your production process, your workers have a nicer working environment. They don't have to get dressed up in the hazardous waste suits in order to go to work. The complexity of what you have to do in terms of the production process to treat the hazardous waste before it gets disposed of elsewhere, that complexity goes away. So your production process actually gets cheaper. Production costs fell by 15 or 20 percent. In fact, when Swiss inspectors came to the plant facility and they hooked up their testing instruments to the water outflow from the plant to test for toxic chemicals in the outflow, they started tapping their devices, thought they were broken, until they took them and went back to the inflow and hooked them up, and it turns out that the readings were normal Swiss tap drinking water with a normal amount of low levels of chemicals and stuff. The plant during the fabric production process with the new process was filtering the water. Right? What if you could create an industrial plant that acts as a water filtration device? Okay. Now, that's a striking story. And it gets a lot of credibility from, I know, something that Andy talked to you about yesterday, of just the specific details that he gives. You know, we've got 7,962 failures. We can make every color but black. Nice detail. The Swiss inspectors who think their instrument is broken. Nice detail. That story gains credibility internally from those specific facts that he's adding. But more importantly, the story gains credibility because Bill McDonough is trying to convince you that change is possible. And we talk in the book about the Sinatra test from Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? This is a Sinatra test story. If you can go into Rohner Textile, in that chemical industry environment and have this kind of change, then there's hope for businesses in lots of other industries and lots of other contexts. So the question for you is, what's your Sinatra test? What's your story that talks about and convinces people that change is possible and that it's credible? Final principle is that urban legends are emotional. The problem is that urban legends very often evoke negative emotions, fear, anger, disgust. Um, and what we mean by emotional and talk about in the book is not so much that they evoke these visceral reactions, but emotional is fundamentally about can we get people to care? Can we get people to care about our ideas? So let me give you a scenario. Suppose that you want to shut down on roadside litter in Texas. Now this is a big problem because Texas has lots of roads. And there are people that analyze roadside litter problems. They start out by going, walking down the highways and clicking different various kinds of litter. There are fast food containers. There are snuff you know, cans. There are beer bottles. It turns out that you can create a profile of the typical consumer who is littering the roads by looking at what debris they leave. And here's the typical litterer in Texas, 18 to 30-year-old truck-driving males. They affectionately term these 
these folks Bubba. All right. So here's the question. How do you get Bubba to stop littering in the state of Texas? Well, let me trot out some potentially emotional ideas. Woodsy Owl. Woodsy worked for me when I was a kid. Very emotional. Give a hoot, don't pollute. That was a great campaign. Might not work for Bubba. Bubba doesn't care about cute cartoon characters. How about this campaign? Very famous, weeping Native Americans. Bubba is going to be concerned about that. Bubba might like making people cry, right? So you're not going to get anywhere with Bubba with this campaign. Here's another one that Bubba might listen to. Fines for roadside litter. Let's raise them so that they're really substantial. And in fact, when they started this process, they had set aside two chunks of money, both equally large. One was going to go to a public service campaign, and one was going to go to increased enforcement. We're going to raise the fines. We're going to get more police out looking for litterers on the roads. Here's the problem with raising roadside fines. You've got to catch people. And there are lots of roads in Texas. So you, you know, even if you raise the fines, you've got to have police officers out there you know, giving people tickets. Here's the campaign that finally worked for the Bubba's in Texas. Don't mess with Texas. All right? There are two things that I know about Texans, because I grew up there. One is that Texans are extraordinarily patriotic, both in terms of the United States, but more importantly in terms of Texas. We think we ought to be a nation, all right? We were at one point, and we're always looking back to that time, all right? So the idea that it's about Texas is an important key. The second thing that you have to know about Texans is we believe that Texas is beautiful. We're wrong about that. <laughs> but if you talk to anyone in Texas about Texas, they think it's a beautiful place. And so what they've beautifully tapped into with this idea is an identity that Texans have about themselves and about the place that they live. So you feature classic Texans like Willie Nelson or Nolan Ryan, who pitched for the Astros and the Rangers. Sports heroes, country and western stars that say to insiders, uh, Randy White, Dallas Cowboys uh, lineman, that most of you might not know, but to a Texan, that's a name that has resonance. And you feature these people saying, look, if you litter, you're messing with Texas. Don't mess with Texas. In the first year after this campaign started coming on the air, litter dropped 30 to 40 percent. By the second year, the amount of litter on Texas roadways has dropped 80%. That pool of money that they had devoted to enforcement, they ended up not spending it because this appeal was so successful. Notice that $500 fines impose a serious consequence on a potential litterer. And very often we think about trying to motivate people with consequences. We offer them money. We give carrots and sticks. Those are consequence-based logics. The problem that a lot of us have in the social sector is we don't have a lot of resources to do consequence-based enforcement. So it might help you to know that identity is as powerful as it is. Identity, in a lot of cases, is more powerful than consequences. There are lots of things that we do in life because of who we want to be that we would never do if somebody just tried to pay us for it. Identity is more powerful than we think, and so if we can get our appeals to people in terms of identities that they aspire to be, our messages are going to be more powerful. Now let me concede up front that the things that I've been talking to you about are not rocket science. And so here's a paradox. Given that all of this stuff is easy to do, 
why don't we see more brilliantly designed ideas? And it turns out that there is a problem, there is a villain, and that's the curse of knowledge. Right? It turns out that in order to solve a problem, you have to be an expert. And yet that very expertise that has given you the capacity to solve a problem handicaps you and your ability to talk about your solution to somebody else. If you've ever had a problem with your computer and you've talked to the IT person who's trying to fix your computer and you've tried to understand what they're saying to you, you've been on the other side of the curse of knowledge. If you've ever talked to a, a, a 10 or 11 year old boy in your life about video games that they're playing and you know, the, the plot of the game and how you win, you've been on the other side of the curse of knowledge. Their expertise is incredible within that domain. But can they picture how ignorant you are in order to explain to you the first principles of playing the game or the IT person? Can they conceive of knowing so little about computers that they start from the right basis in telling you about what's wrong with your computer? They're in a different universe. And in the chapter that's available on the website, we talk more about the curse of knowledge. But notice that all of us face the curse of knowledge. If we're smart enough to be able to solve a problem, it's not going to be natural for us to talk about our solutions to other people. The very knowledge that allowed us to come to a solution hurts us in telling other people about it. And so knowing about the curse of knowledge, let's take an example of a person that has an insider's view. The Norton Priory Museum in Runcorn, England, the person from the Norton Priory was in one of the programs that we did here at Stanford, and we asked him to talk to us about what that museum did. And here's his answer. We're about caring for the historic sites of the Norton Priory for future generations and making them accessible for people to understand and learn from. Now that sounds eerily familiar to what most of us would say about our organizations. And yet, even in a group of people in the room that were passionate about arts and cultural institutions, they weren't very jazzed about the Norton Priory Museum. And they started saying to him, well, but, but what do you do? And why do you want to preserve this thing? I mean, why is it important? He said, well, this is a, a monastery that has been continuously occupied for 800 years. We have records of what people were eating for breakfast 750 years ago. You know, what they were growing, the places that they lived, the way that they expanded the facility over time. And so it's like 800 years of human history, where they lived, what they built, what they ate. And somebody else in the room said, oh, it's like history without a book. Right? Now that's a, a very, talk about simple and unexpected. Those are two parts of the framework that we didn't talk about this morning. That's a very simple, unexpected way of thinking about what the Norton Prairie Museum offers. This statement that he came out with of, look, this is 800 years of human history. There's a connection there that you have with people who lived a long time ago, seeing what their lives were like, that you can get at the Norton Priory Museum that you can't get anywhere else. Now, here's the question. Why did this person who had devoted his life to this museum have such a hard time articulating what was going on and why we should care about it? The answer is the curse of knowledge. And the way that he started to get his message across was being prodded by other people to be more concrete. Or, in the case of History Without a Book, somebody gave him you know, the perfect line, the perfect simple, unexpected image that expresses what the Norton Priory Museum is. So the way that we're going to overcome the curse of knowledge is it's very easy, but it's not natural. And so 
what we were hoping to do in writing the book is to recognize that it's hard to create messages that stick because we are all cursed by our knowledge. And so instead of trying to talk to people with our level of expertise, it helps us to have a framework in mind and to run our ideas past the checklist and past the framework in order to think about whether our ideas have these qualities or whether we can get these qualities into our ideas. You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Bernadette Clavier. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.